Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Well, I uh, work in the ICU at Dandenong. I'm the ICU educator. Um, I've been doing that job for about 20 years, so I'm an old fart. <laughs> You've laid the foundational skills and knowledge base for more critical care nurses and doctors over the years that I can even imagine. Um, Would you mind telling us a little bit about your nursing journey and how you got to where you're at now? Yeah, I started off as a, um, well, a lot of other jobs, but as a nurse's aide in in Bendigo at the the aged care centre there. Um, After a while, you get sick of being bossed around by the sisters, so... I thought I might go off and uh, become a, a registered nurse myself. So, yeah. so that's what we did. So, what uh, year was that, mate? Would have been seventy-eight, probably. So I went through um, the Bendigo base and Meribar Hospital. Probably the, we were the first school at Meribar, really. So we went to Meribar. There was five of us, and did the um, the course through Meribar and the base hospital. It's sort of like a satellite thing. Yeah, right. And so, where to from there? Big pun. Where to from there? And then um, after I fi- graduated, um, come down to Melbourne because I wanted to go to Melbourne. And um, I suppose um, a lot of agency work for a while. Um, and then at the Alfred Hospital, I went to the Alfred Hospital and did my um, course there. So I see you training. Care, yeah. Yep. And um, worked between Dan and I and the Alfred mainly for a a fair few years, and then then based more at Dandenong after that. And you've been at, at so Dandenong for those who don't know is um, is on the it used to be on the outskirts of Melbourne. It's not really anymore. So it's called Greater Dandenong. It's, it used to be a satellite kind of a satellite town, yeah. but now it's pretty much it's joined in with Melbourne, um, and it's part of Monash, Monash Health. Monash Health, so, yeah. So Monash Health is. Pretty much covers the whole southeast of Melbourne. Um, they've got three emergency departments, three three main acute hospitals, and then some resi care, obviously, and aged care, and a bunch of other rehab places. So it's a pretty large network. But you work at one of the ICUs at Dandenong Hospital. That's right, at Dandenong rather than Monash Clayton. So you've been an educator in ICU around the corner from where I work for how long? Well, about 20 years, I suppose, overall. 20, 20, is it time to get out of there now? <laughs> <laughs> Fall off the perch, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were talking before we pressed record that you're looking pretty good and you've got a few more years in you, you reckon? Yeah, probably got one or two. So, see how we go. Um, one of the things that our ED relies on ICU for, obviously, is feedback about how we're going with some of the um, nuances of, of uh, our critical care provision um, and one of the things we do with Fletch for example is we get him around when we've got uh, somebody who we're really challenged by who's you know maybe their uh, lungs are like a block of cheese and we can't get air in can't get air out um, and Fletch is just your go-to person but more so than that um, whenever whenever a, a junior quick care educator starts out in the role and they're making that, you know, that difficult transition from f- uh, 100% sort of 
bedside clinical care to um, the role of the teacher. Anybody who's worked with you or has been taught by you or even just seen your style of teaching, both at the bedside as well as in the classroom, they inevitably want to emulate your style of teaching. Can you tell us how you think about teaching critical care concepts and skills and what it is about that that you do so well? Well, I think the idea is to make it as simple as you can and get, you know, power it right down to the basics and then just add little layers after that. And a lot of the time it's spending a lot of time at the bedside with the, with the trainees. Yeah. So, so as an educator, do you find that a challenge? Because uh, I used to often think I feel more like an education administrator than a, mm. than a hands-on educator, at the, you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> I get told off a lot of times for not, not doing all that administrative work. I'd rather be out at the bedside. Yeah, that, and, and that stands out and that's what you're known for. Mm. Um, and every time we bring a patient around, especially if, there's a, if it's a challenging patient when we deliver you an ICU patient, if you're on if you're on on duty, you're always there to to listen in and then help the person set up the set set them up when they arrive in the ICU. Yeah, it's more fun hands on. Yeah, and that's another part of it, isn't it? <coughs> it's, it's all the, role modelling and that sort of thing as well. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that that's r- right on the point of what you do best. And everybody that I know, not just at this hospital, but at most hospitals where they've either been trained by you or seen you work it's it's about that role modeling and about you know how to go about your business and how to 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 portray yourself so um do you have any other thoughts about that like i, I know we're going to talk about ventilation principles and very fundamental ventilation principles but educators out there could learn a lot from you have you got any other thoughts on <laughs> the top of your head um no, Fletch, I sent you these <laughs> questions. <laughs> no, I forgot to study before no, I got here. And, and, you know, why should you? You don't <laughs> need to. It's all in your head, right? Um, I think I remember uh, asking you once when I first became an educator, uh, what sort of resource is the best resource for me to use? Where, where do you go to for your resources? And you just pointed to your head. <laughs> That's the idea, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. All right, look, before we do get into some of the practicalities of what we want to talk about today, and that's just the fundamental principles of ventilation and we'll be getting you back god willing to talk about some of the more challenging situations that you 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 have with ventilation but given that these clinical updates are kind of directed at newish people to icu ied or any of the specialty areas ccu uh, periop um in any of the postgrads out there were listening what would you say to them or how would you advise them to think about their learning uh, around critical care concepts and skills? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of that starts early though. We have a, an introduction to ICU course type thing. I think they get a lot of the key concepts then. And so it's like a gentle introduction to the concepts. And then when they go to the uni, it's uh, a lot more um, a, a higher type learning. So they've already got an introduction, so it's much easier to get into it. Do, do you reckon the uh, bringing in TSP has changed the way people hit the ground running when they're doing their postgrad? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. All our girls can go do their first uh, first semester uni pretty easily. Because uh, and 
just so the listeners know, we used to get uh, Fletch to come around to our TSPs. That's transition to specialty practice, right? It's like a short new starters ICU or ED course for. for any of the specialty crit care areas and, and beyond, med surge everywhere has them. Um, but Flesh used to come around and talk about things like non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as well as ventilation concepts and um, other cardiovascular issues and, you know, you were our go-to person. So it, it always felt like me when I took over the post-grad training that they were so well set up with that. They were ready to go. They knew the concepts. They just needed to get that slightly higher level of um, understanding of the concepts and the skills. So um, I think I've mentioned already, today we're just going to talk about some very fundamental parts of ventilation um, and then hopefully we'll get you back in a couple of weeks and we'll talk about you know, some more challenging patients to, to ventilate to ventilate so um when you're talking about concepts related to caring for a patient who needs uh ventilatory support um can we start talking briefly uh about why someone might need ventilatory support and what's this business about type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure well, type 1 respiratory failure is hypoxic failure, so there's a failure to oxygenate, yep. whereas the type 2 is a failure to ventilate, so a failure to take gas in and out, basically, and also affects the oxygenation as well. So if you want to ventilate someone, you, probably the type 2 would be the one we ventilate the most uh, because the, the ventilation, you'd be able to get a rate and a volume, a minute volume, so you'll be ventilating for them. Um, type 1s... They probably need the ventilator more for um, to put peep on and maybe longer inspiration times to try to open up their lung and keep it open. That's the sort of thing we do with the type 1s. So just to come back to type 1, so you've got a hypoxic patient, so they, they yeah. look hypoxic in, on their gases, whereas a type 2, they're hypercapnic, right? That's right. They're, yeah. not, they're not breathing as well. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, you've got, a, you've got one where they're usually their CO2s it's probably low actually because they're huffing and puffing exactly. trying to get oxygen in but it's not going across exactly and then type two you've got somebody who's just not moving air and their and their their co2 is creeping up correct Great. like the copd type patient so in i guess in days long gone by when i was taught um about ventilation in ed it was all about gas in gas out and um we've come a long way since then um, and mostly through just pushing evidence-based stuff and uh, uh, but I wonder um, we've gotten a, quite a bit more nuanced in our thinking about how this is done and what sort of outcomes we're trying to achieve for the patient not wanting to lead the witness no. <laughs> um, but would you be okay to start talking about what positive pressure ventilation is and how it actually all the different benefits it has for the patient? Yeah, well, we breathe negatively, don't we? we? We suck the gas in, whereas a ventilator will push the gas in under positive pressure. Um, so it's got a lot of bad things with that too because yeah. the positive we'll, we'll pressure... We'll get to that. Yeah. But for, to begin, we might talk about what sort of benefits you get for a patient who requires that type of ventilation. Well, you can maintain their minute volume for a start. Um, the other thing is we can add PEEP and um, positive pressure at the end of... Um, expiration yep. 
to open up the alveoli and keep them open and also to remove uh, lung water and prevent repetitive opening and closing of your alveoli which causes lung damage. So that removing of water, just to be clear, um, the, the positive pressure doesn't push water through the alveoli wall, does it? <laughs> no, no, it just yeah. prevents it coming over. Yeah. So like a hydrostatic pressure, a, a pressure against the, yeah. the other so pressure. So APO, for instance. What other benefits do they get from uh, positive pressure ventilation? Well, you get to put them on the oxygen you want and they get the oxygen they want. Yep. And the other thing is um, flow rates too. So inspiratory flow rates can be fairly high. So on a ventilator, they can deliver whatever flow rate they need, which is how fast they suck the gas in. Right. So you started touching on a few things that I did want to ask you about, and that is what sort of pressures within... Um, the mask lung or ETT lung circuit should we be thinking about when we're setting up a ventilator? Well, if you're using non-invasive, I think you've got to think of lower pressures because the patient won't handle high pressures through a mask. But if you've got an ETT in or a trachea... Because you've got a closed circuit, right? Yeah, closed circuit. We can... um, Pressures should be kept below 30 in general. So 30 pip or another one we use is P-plato or plateau pressure... So probably talk about it at a later date. Yeah. Well, well I'll tell you what. Why don't we talk, just explain what PIP is just to begin? Well, PIP is the peak inspiratory pressure yeah. of delivering the gas. A plateau, a plateau would be the amount of volume stretch on your lungs and the pressure that causes. Yeah. Yeah. So you do a bit of a hold. Yeah, you do an inspiratory pause or a hold, yeah. And it'll measure it for you. It gives the you a really player. good idea of, of, of what's going on inside the lung because you can't see Well, you see can work it. out compliance and resistance from doing that, yeah. And, and you're right. We will, I think we will come back to that because yep. that's probably the next step uh, in talking about ventilating is to talk about some of those more nuanced sort of setting changes. Um, and breath types, is, there some, is this something... Well, breath types, mainly to? they talk about volume... Control breath and a pressure control breath. What's the um, difference between those two, mate? Well, if you use a volume control breath, the volume is set, but uh, the other other values might change, so the pressure might be very high for that particular volume. Um, if you use pressure control, then your then your volumes are variable, so you could have a set pressure which is not giving you much volume at all. So you have to be a bit careful of those sort of modes. So it's not just about going, all right, this is the pressure I want them to reach. It's no, you need to watch. Exactly. It needs to hang around and, and read the ventilator and see what's going on. So, look, if we were to assume that our listeners are across, like, say, the four factors which control the respiratory cycle, let's just assume that. For the pressure, minute. volume, flow and time. Nice. Can you talk us through delivering inspiration and what we need to consider here? Well, during inspiration, that's when those four factors come in. There's a pressure to deliver the breath. Uh, the volume flows in over time. Um, so you've got to think about... Um, it depends on the sort of lung problems we've got. How quickly you want to give the breath, for instance. So a person with asthma might need longer to breathe out, so you might want to give the breath a bit quicker. A person with um, pretty khaki lung might need the gas delivered over a longer period to give it time for the lung to open up and accept the breath. So when you say a khaki lung, you're talking... Well, like, a, like an ARDS yeah. or a pneumonia or something like that. Yeah, so something where there's... It just takes... Um, there's a time constant. You, you need to increase the time to open up the alveoli. And it needs more time for the gas to travel down... Well, to get in, yeah. 
time and pressure probably. So um, is that kind of all you want to talk about there around um, inspiration and what we need to consider? Well, the other thing is about the, the pressure, time, flow and volume. Is, is that your, um, how you ventilate cycles too? Yeah. And so how do you tell the ventilator to turn off and let them breathe out? So we can, um, we can set a certain volume. It's like 800 mils. Once that's finished, they cycle off and breathe out or a set flow or a, or a set time or a set volume. Perfect. Uh, just if you're listening away, uh, Fletch is having a giggle there. It's because I keep telling him to put the mic to his mouth and stop waving it around. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, okay, back to the gas in, gas out misnomer, right? Mm. So um, there's several different ventilation modes. W- would it be okay if you were to talk us through these and why we would choose one over another? What yeah, sort of, yeah. yeah. Well, the gas, gas in, gas out thing is, is not that bad, but sometimes gas goes in and doesn't come out. Exactly. That's the problem. And sometimes it can't get it in. Yeah. So they're the big problems with, with that. So there are a lot of modes around at the moment. I suppose the main one would be you either choose your breath type of volume or your pressure, so volume control or pressure control. And then probably SIMV would be the number one mode and probably volume control to start. And then if the, uh, the lungs aren't, responding to that maybe changing over to a pressure control mode so an simv pressure control and if that's not working we can push to other modes like this there's airway pressure release ventilation which is uh, making the gas go in for a lot longer in a pressure control mode and less time to breathe out so you actually trap them up a little bit more mm-hmm. which is good for your ards type patients um there's there's other modes there called pressure regulated volume control. Oh, what's that? Well, that's where you set a certain pressure you don't want to go over, and the machine will deliver a, a volume you set, and it'll try to deliver under that pressure inside a time you set, and that'll um, just by altering the flow. So sometimes it's called auto flow. Are there any other modes on the ventilator that actually we never even use? There are heaps of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are they about? Minimum mandatory minute volume. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's that many. It's, it's a pretty wanky exercise, really. There's a, a lot of <laughs> modes. Right, so let's stick to the main ones that we, we well, use. Well, this IMV, volume or exactly. pressure. That's, and that's then our go-to. And then is a n- new one, which is quite good. And the auto flow or the pressure-regulated volume control is probably the, the other big one. So, yeah, most of our patients from ED... We'll go on to SIMV. It's you know it's it works well for most situations. No, it's a good way because everyone knows knows it. They're all familiar with it. You can't really stuff it up so much at the start. Peter Fritz um, about RSI, difficult airways, um, and what we know is that like most intubations largely go quite well. And so let's assume that our patient's intubation went smoothly, um, they're a young lady, healthy lungs, all going well. Um, can you run through some of the initial basic settings that you need to do once you're going to disconnect from 
hand ventilation and move over to the ventilator. Yeah, just a normal type patient, yeah, maybe an yeah, overdose or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. normal so lungs. Young, healthy lady yep. with good lungs, no history of That's the usual overdose exactly. scenario. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that hasn't yeah. aspirated. No, they haven't aspirated. <laughs> they just won't wake up and we're concerned about, you know. Okay. Yeah. So we normally start them off on a, a rate, probably SIMV, put them on SIMV volume control. Start them off a race of 12. Uh, you may or may not have auto flow, but if you've got set flow, we'll set a flow of 60 because 60 is high enough to cover anyone's inspiratory demand. Um, the tidal volume would be set about 5 to 8 mils per kilo because you've got pretty normal lungs, probably about 8 mils per kilo. Um, we'd probably put a little bit of peep on, but 5 of peep just to cover them. And if they started to wake up, you'd probably need to have some pressure support available, so probably 10 of pressure support. All right. Can we put a pin in that just for a sec? Yep. Um, one of the things that uh, I struggled with at the very beginning of my ED career, and I found some, not all, some of the uh, postgrad students and TSPs struggle with the concept of PEEP. What peep. do you say to people who struggle with the idea of how PEEP works? Well, put your hand over your face and blow into that. I mean, that's, that's PEEP, that's pressure against breathing out. I used to talk about using the inside of an empty toilet roll and putting your hand parsley over yeah, the Yeah, you can end. do that. Or blow into a bottle with a straw. Yeah, feel the resistance that's mm. created, which creates a resistance back down. and Which pop, leaves your alveoli open. Splints you. Yeah, I suppose the other thing about it is it increases your FRC or your functional residual capacity. So if you breathe out normally, and then you should be able to breathe out a fair bit more after that. But these people with no reserve breathe out and there's nothing left. So you need to have something left to add the PEEP to give them more FRC. And PEEP has got other, like, cardiovascular benefits and stuff as well. Yeah, it's got some bad ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'll get to that. <laughs> we will get to that, I promise you. You want to talk about the bad Well, there's not many good ones. There's not many good ones for cardiovascular with PEEP. Yeah, so maybe just... Well, except for maybe uh, reduce, reducing the fluid in your lungs. Yeah, and improving, you know, reducing the workload on, of the, on the heart. Or decrease the venous return. Return, therefore mm. you've got less yep. to pump around. So, yep. you know, the heart has a bit of time to catch up maybe. But, yeah, you're right. So we will come to the negatives, don't worry. So I stopped you right there when you were, t- you were talking about PEEP and then you were talking about... Um, oh, pressure support was yep. the next one, 10 of pressure support normally. And then the FIO2 to so whatever they need. So I've got to stop you again. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, tell us what pressure support does. I mean, we talked a little bit at the start. How does that help? Well, pressure support's a pressure that the patient gets during a spontaneous inspiration. Yep. And the idea is to help them breathe in, so reduce their work of breathing, but also to increase their tidal volumes. So if they're huffing and puffing along and not doing much in the way of a big breath, you add pressure support, it'll slow them down a little bit, make them take a bigger breath and ease that work that they've physically got to do to get the gas Well, they don't have to suck as hard to get it in because of the positive pressure putting it in. Fantastic. Um, and you were going uh, to, uh, before I rudely interrupted, <laughs> you were going to talk Well, about the other thing, you have to set a trigger too. So yeah, okay. a trigger is what, how the ventilator knows to actually give them a breath. Yep. So a trigger is normally nowadays we'd use flow triggering, about two or three litres per minute. So what does flow triggering mean? Well... With flow triggering, there's a, an amount of flow going around the ventilator circuit all the time. They yep. call that bias flow. And that might be five litres per minute. If you set your flow trigger at three litres per minute, when the patient reduces that bias flow from five down to two, i.e. by three, the ventilator will know that some of it's disappeared, so it'll give them a breath. 
So, and that's triggered by them. It's triggered by them sucking. Yeah, sucking in. The flow. Yeah. Machine goes, oh, I need to help. That's right. But it's very easy to do that. Whereas with pressure triggering, you've got to suck a bit harder. Yeah. A bit more work. Why would you use pressure triggering? Um, We wouldn't nowadays. They're all flow triggered nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one one thing we might use it for is um, a person with a. Bronchopleural fistula is on suction. Yeah, because right. it tends to suck, um, tends to uh, stimulate the ventilator to give a breath all the oh, time. Right, because yeah. it reduces the flow. Yeah, so you might have to put them on a pressure trigger then. That's a bit high end for us. Poor no, I've seen people. that before though. It just <laughs> come to mind. I've actually seen that one. <laughs> I wonder why a, a paralysed sedated patient was taking breaths. Yeah, it was actually the suction causing the ventilator oh, to trigger. Right. Yeah. So you had to switch over to the. So we had to, yeah. Cool. Make it a bit harder to do it. So what else? Uh, FiO two. Yep. I have to set FiO two. Well, how do we? How do we? How do we make our decisions about FiO two? Well, I think at the start they're all going one hundred percent, and then work it out from there. So after you've done gases, you'd be able to back off. You know, your PaO two should be at least five times what your FiO two is. And so one of the things that we might talk about next time, but we, we might just slip in here, is we want to protect those lungs as well because if they're on a ventilator for a while... Oh, high oxygen is bad, yeah. yeah. And why is that? But <laughs> it, ex- <laughs> too much? Too much to <laughs> No, no, no. It actually um, causes oxygen radicals to develop, so the O2s break down to posoneg, oposoneg, and causes inflammation. And so you can get a, a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema from that. And it leads to ARDS and all sorts of Correct. things. Yeah. Wash out a surfactant, the whole thing. We will come back to that, I reckon, in another episode because that sort of stuff's really intriguing and it's actually overlooked quite a bit, especially when you, know, you want to get your patient in, intubated, ventilated, and then try and hunt down a bed for them somewhere in Victoria. Um, but we really need to work harder, I think. On turning it down quicker. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. getting them you know, more into a, a, as close to a normal breathing sort of... Well, the more um, spontaneous stuff they can do, the better. What other settings have we missed? I can't remember. That's about all of them. Yeah, that is, isn't it? We've yeah. done everything. We've done rate. We've done volume. We've done pressures. We've done. There's flow. a few if you use it. You know, rise to pressure, time rise to pressure, stuff like that. I think we might put a pin in those, um, yeah. given that we're talking about reasonably fundamental yeah. settings here. So, look, is that it? So all you do is just set and forget. No, you don't sit and forget. Or do we need to manipulate these as we go and why? Well, I think some, some people who have ventilators that do auto flow think they can sit and forget. Yeah, but, right. But no, you can't. You've got, you've got to watch the patient. The lungs change. They get better, you've got to turn things down. They get worse, you might have to turn things up. So it's a constant, constant watch and changing. So it's not as if you put Joe Blow beside a ventilator and look after it. You've got to know what you're doing. No, exactly. So what sort of uh, observations should we be doing? Well, you'd be looking at their exhaled tidal volumes, their minute volumes, their, um, their pressures, and doing plateau pressures every now and again if you're on volume control. Just to make sure they're not trapping. Yep. And, yep. Uh, definitely gases, uh, saturations, entitled CO2s, uh, just general um, hemodynamics as well because the ventilator does affect the hemodynamics. You know, you see them come in pretty thin and attractive and they're pretty puffy and blown up 
a few you know a few days later because of the ventilator. So yeah. rings and that off's a good thing to do early. And yeah, so I, I think it's often a bit of a trap when you first start looking after ventilator patients to focus on the ventilator and to focus on the respiratory side of things and forget about all of those negative cardiovascular effects and effects on everything else which Great. brings us to the stuff that you've wanted to talk about uh for ages now so um we spend heaps of time trying to avoid intubating mm. uh patients and therefore mechanically ventilating patients is this because we don't want to take up your beds around an icu or is it because there's a bunch of potential complications related to all sorts of different body systems well, there's a lot of complications. It's not just the ventilator, though. It's the tube itself. Putting a tube into someone is no mean feat. They could vomit and aspirate. and You know, the cuff can cause problems. As you know, some of them come around from ED with cuff pressures of over oh, 100 because okay. <laughs> they just whack it, just whack it 10 mils. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of so cuff and um, tube problems. So, to be clear, Mouth what we're talking about with the, the cuff pressure is you blow up the balloon so so too much and it actually starts to I could block off the crisis. blood supply yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah blood supply to your bronchus yeah so pretty nasty um what was i talking about <laughs> we were talking about some of the other negative or you know some of the poor outcomes that patients get from ventilation oh why we don't want to put a tube in them how we need to think about looking after them so that we can reduce those risks yeah, a lot of things can be treated too, can't they? If you, if you maintain them for a little while on NIV, for instance, you can get fluid off. You can you know, get them to take big breaths and huff and puff. And so you can get away without a ventilator, but there comes a time when the ventilator's, the tube's got to go in and the ventilator's got to go on. Yeah, so it's in, right? We've made that decision. We've tried yeah. to avoid it maybe with some some BiPAP or CPAP, whatever it might be. And it just, yep. you know, the, they're, they're not... They're not uh, they're not rallying to that treatment. We've put the tube in; all went well. Um, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about trying to avoid for the patient, given that now they're in a risky? Some of the bad things. Well, there was in the old days they used to call it ARDS, and then all of a sudden, because everyone was getting ARDS because we were giving them too many too much tidal volume, they called it ALI, which is acute lung injury. Yeah, I see. Recently, it's gone back to ARDS yeah. again. <laughs> So what we want to avoid is acute lung injury, basically. Yep. So the main ones of that, the main things of that are barotrauma. So you want to keep the pressure down so you don't cause pressure trauma. You want to keep the uh, tidal volume down so you don't cause volume trauma. There's something called atelectotrauma, which is repetitive opening and closing of the lung. So we probably need to use enough PEEP to prevent that. And the other one, all these together will cause biotrauma as will the oxygen uh, toxicity as well, mm. cause biotrauma. So this is a pretty nasty one. Yeah. And not so much in ED, but around with us, they tend to end up with ventilator-required pneumonia. pneumonia. So VAP's a big one. Yeah. So you need to do things like sitting them up and mouth care and um, preventing aspiration, basically. Mm. Um, so how long after they get to you, uh, it is there triggers or indicators for when you decide to put a trachea in? Uh, at, one st at one stage, we were doing early trachees. Yep. So if we thought they were going to be more than a week, we'd put a trachea in. Nowadays, we tend to hang on a bit, hang on a bit longer. Um, 
patients you know they're going to be a long time so they're going to have a trachea um i suppose seven to ten days we'd be thinking about it unless we knew they needed a trachea earlier earlier yeah yeah right all right so um aspiration so that uh we've talked about uh acute lung injury um what other systems are affected that we need to be thinking about well hemodynamics so you know reduces preload reduces stroke volume cardiac output and blood pressure when you do that you reduce flow to your kidneys and so your uh, compensatory mechanisms kick in you tend to um stimulate your sympathetic nervous system and your RAS system and you tend to hang on to water so what we notice with our patients that are ventilated on higher pressures for a while is that they they do develop very puffy very edematous so you need to get those rings off very early on on because otherwise you've got to cut them off um, so that's one of the systems the other one is probably one of the worst situations you could be if you get a head injury as well as a lung injury because to treat the, the lung injury, you've got to use positive pressure and Which that's not very good. No, not good for venous return from your brain, no. So what do you do there? You'll have to balance, balancing act. It, it's a balancing act mm. always, isn't it? Same yeah. with sepsis. It's yeah. a balancing act. You've got something affecting uh, the cardiovascular system and your blood getting to your kidneys and the rest of your system mm. um, and it's that fine line of balancing that ICU do so well. With inotropic support and, and filling, yeah, and filling. balancing between filling and vasopressors, basically. What about the GIT system? Well, it does affect that too because you can't eat when you <laughs> when you got a tube in, can you? So they tend to go on to nasogastric feeds, um, but it can upset your, your stomach anyway. Yeah. So you get decreased flow to your stomach as well. Other sort of more fundamental things about day-to-day care, you know, we're trying to avoid uh, little pressure, pressure areas yeah. here, there and everywhere. Yeah, a lot of problems with that. That's a pretty big topic at the moment, actually, trying to stop mouth pressure areas yeah. over the top of the tongue and you know, damage to teeth and tongue and, exactly. and your throat. So we need to move the uh, tube from side to side. How often? Well, we're doing it every... At least every two hours is every the idea. Two, every two hours, yeah, right. They're, they're making new. Um, I can't. I can't remember the name. The halter. Oh yes. Uh, no, I can't remember the name. I can't remember the name of the damn thing. It's a hole. It holds onto the tube, and you can actually grasp it and move it really easily. You don't have to undo anything. So that's quite good, but it's got a few problems as well. What are they? Well, it comes with a mouth guard, so they can't bite ah, on the tube. Yep. But the mouth guard can be problematic, and that is pretty tough, and it can bite into their tongue and their teeth and stuff. So you've got to really observe closely and make sure it's sitting You properly. have to be careful, yeah. And then get pressure areas around the back of their neck and that where it's tied. Um, when you tie tubes now in ICU, where else are you worried about pressure injuries? Uh, with a tube patient, you're worried about other injuries too because they're actually sitting up and their backside is probably one of the big ones. Um but yeah, around the back of their ears, can go over their ears sometimes, can cause problems. And around the back of their neck. So plenty of padding and changing the thing pretty regularly is the way to go. And moving them around in the bed Did, too. To yeah, avoid for sure, yeah. We go side to side on the you know, unconscious ones. Sacrum, shoulder tips, scapula, all of those places, heels. All the beds in that we've got nowadays are really 
rigged up for that yeah, sort of good, thing. Yeah, they're good, aren't they? Yeah. It makes life so much easier. We used to have turning teams. No, well, we still yeah. got we still sort of turn them, but yeah. uh, it's not as problematic as what it was. You got anything else that we should be thinking of to uh, in sort of think about it from the point of view of an ED, right? So, so you won't need to know about weaning. <laughs> we can talk. I was I was wondering whether to talk about weaning. Actually, um, no. you know what? Since you brought it up, if you've got the time, I'd love to hear because actually one of the things we do now in ED a lot is intubate them for a short space of time with no plan to admit them to ICU. Well, that's a pretty short wean period with the the ODs and that, yeah. yeah. But let's talk about weaning, the principles of weaning. Well, the principles are as soon as you put them on the ventilator, you're weaning. You start. Yeah, so it's not as if you leave them for three days and then decide to and wean go, them. Oh, it's time to wean. <laughs> yeah, correct. It's, it's like uh, it's like the it's like the idea of you thinking about discharging the patient when you admit them. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So we're trying to wean them off from the start. So little things like turn the rate down, turn the peep up and the and the oxygen down, and then up after that turning the peep down, getting the pressure support down. So just to be clear, this is about trying to make the patient reacclimatize to the idea of them breathing for themselves. Well, it's trying to make them do more of their own breaths, which is why we do SIMV, basically. So we're putting in more um, spontaneous breathing. Because spontaneous breathing is obviously better for you because it's not a positive pressure and you're using all your muscles as well. So you should be able to build up and get off. Obviously, if we don't do that, they'll lose muscle power and then they won't be able to get off. There's a long-term... weaning problem so you talked about um pressures volumes rate uh using simv what other things do you need to talk about when you think about when you're weaning a patient well we can use t-piece as well we can take them off the ventilator but uh most of the ventilators nowadays allow you to keep them on the ventilator for the entire trip so they have um non-invasive facility um, invasive facility and they also have a high flow nasal facility so you can do the whole options on the one ventilator which is really good it takes away a lot of the challenge what about do we start waking them up as well oh yeah <laughs> well they'll start off paralyzed and sedated won't they and then from there on it's all up hopefully um, how do you ever use paralysis after that they're very rare now I wonder whether uh, the uh, you know the 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 way we think about sedating patients when they're on a ventilator comes later. Uh, whether we talk to you about that at a different time, um, but if you've got any sort of starting points for new people to ventilation, um, now would be a good time to speak up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the the idea nowadays is not to give them too much Valium and Valium type drugs because they get delirious from it and. It's not something you'll see in ED, but it's something we see a lot in ICU. So we try to keep them off those sort of drugs. Um, you know, morphine, we've probably gone away from that a little bit nowadays. And the preference and is... Fentanyl probably be the preference now. Yep. Propofol? But yeah, propofol for sure, yeah, sorry. Yeah. White magic, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> white magic. <laughs> Keeps them asleep a bit. Yeah, good. Look, I think there's a lot to talk about with sedation. It's, yep. um The practices have waxed and waned and changed over the years dextrodomodidine whatever it's called yeah exactly <laughs> that moving. big word what's that one called say that again sorry dextrodomodidine 
<laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> moving away from morph medaz, moving more towards something that we can titrate easily, but also reverse uh, in a reasonably... You want to be able to turn way. it off and they wake up, basically, yeah. So I think there's probably another conversation. Maybe when we talk about more advanced issues with ventilation, it'd be good to talk about um, how we think about sedation as well. Yeah, no problem. Hey, Fletch. Thanks heaps for showing up for this. As always, um, I've learned heaps. Hopefully the listeners have learned at least one thing from this. So thanks. Pleasure. <laughs> Take care, mate. Okay. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com You've been listening to This Emergency Life a podcast about your emergency life <laughs>